And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when the uh, President of the United States meets with uh, the leader of the free world. Uh, <laughs> the leader of the free world is not the President of the United States, nor it's not uh, uh, Rishi Sunak, the uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain, nor President Macron of France. It's Vladimir Zelensky who is in Washington meeting with the president. Uh, what's fascinating to me is when people are commenting on this, and it, yes, it's a historic meeting, and yes, it's dramatic, and yes, it came up all of a sudden, and yes, uh, I think Zelensky deserves a big national audience when he speaks to the Congress of the United States, a joint session tonight. And uh, everybody commenting about Zelensky's visit has noted that he is wearing a green sweater and cargo pants, which is not normally what you wear when you come to visit the White House. We will be uh, talking uh, about that and, uh, and about the impact of Zelensky's visit and the impact of uh, continued aid to Ukraine. Does the continued aid to Ukraine, and far more important than that, the rise in the defense budget, which has been dramatic. This is an area where the Republicans, even before taking over the House, have actually done well in the negotiations. Does that commitment to defend Ukraine, to provide the Patriot missile batteries, to have the additional funds for Ukrainian aid that are in part of this omnibus bill, that combined with a 9% increase in defense spending, which, by the way, is more than the Biden administration asked for. But it's what our generals and admirals need, particularly our admirals, particularly with our Navy trying to keep pace with China. Should that inclusion in the omnibus bill lead people, enough Republicans to get this thing over the line to pass the omnibus bill and to avoid going into an economic crisis, and it would be an economic crisis, it would be damaging to every single American if they can't get this done by Friday, and we have just on Christmas Eve exactly what the American people don't want for Christmas, which was another government shutdown. Uh, 1-800-955-1776, by the way, is our telephone number. The, uh, uh, the idea of Zelensky speaking to Congress in 1941, right after Pearl Harbor, uh, which was a Christmas like no other, with America suddenly realizing that our holiday from history was over, we had been dragged into a war we didn't want to be involved in, and no, by the way, President uh, Roosevelt never declared war on Germany. Germany declared war on us eight days after Pearl Harbor. Uh, pardon me, that's uh, four days after Pearl Harbor. Hitler declared war on the 11th of December of 1941. And on December 26th, the day after Christmas, Winston Churchill uh, was in Washington. He spent... Uh, a part of the Christmas holiday with the Roosevelt family. He was a guest in the White House. And uh, he also addressed Congress. Uh, and, and this was uh, one of those things that uh, obviously is Zelensky trying to imitate that because 
It is just days before Christmas, uh, four days before Christmas. And now he is speaking to Congress tonight. Uh, as an actor by trade, will his uh, speech rise to the level of Gary Oldman <laughs> invoking Churchill? Gary Oldman won a uh, well-deserved Oscar for that film, uh, The Darkest Hour. Uh, and uh, he played Winston Churchill. Will Zelensky play Churchill with a much thicker accent uh, tonight when he delivers his speech? Uh, we shall see. He spoke to Biden in uh, the Oval Office, and uh, President Zelensky, the embattled president of Ukraine, expressed his thanks to the American people. Uh, clip one. All my appreciations from my heart, from the heart of Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, from our nation, strong nations, all the appreciations to you, first of all, Mr. President, for your big support and leadership, of course, your many countries helped us and are helping now, because the war is not over, it's a bit, but anyway, but that is your leadership, thank you, first of all. Thank you so much, Mr. President. Of course, thanks my partisan support, thanks Congress, and and thanks from our just ordinary people to your ordinary people, Americans. I really appreciate. I think it's very difficult to to understand what does it mean when we say appreciate, but but you really have. To have to feel it and thank you so much great honor to be here okay and the the question is to understand how much the ukrainians appreciate this um think about what uh, could have happened to their country in the last year were it not for the aid from the united states of america and our nato allies and uh, there was a moment, it's a little bit cheesy, of course, and uh, um, Joe Biden received uh, an award from President Zelensky, and I'm not sure it was a kind of award that he grew up dreaming of. I mean, most presidents dream of winning a Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> like, like Barack Obama did before he was even president. And it's kind of unclear what he actually had done to win a Nobel Peace Prize, except to kind of exist. Al Gore won a Nobel Peace Prize, if you recall, for trying to alert the world about climate change. So no Nobel Peace Prize for Joe Biden, but he did win a special Ukrainian award. Uh, listen, clip two. I want to give you something. One guy is really a real hero, real captain. And he asked me to pass his award. He asked me to pass his award to President Biden. You will understand. He is the captain of Heimer's battery. Yes, he's very brave. And he said, give it to a very brave president. And I want to give you that at the cross. Cross for military merit. That is one. Oh, God, love you. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Biden did sound a little bit surprised. Well, God love you. Um, and uh, that, of, of course, uh, by the way, I'm sure uh, the people from Freedom From Religion 
Foundation, who have a full-page ad in the New York Times today uh, with uh, Santa Claus declaring his non-belief in God. This is exactly what we need for the holiday season. What we need for the holiday season is a little bit uh, more of the clarity that you are beginning to hear, including clarity about that Title 42 uh, on the border issue. Uh, Ruben Navarrete, who we'll be speaking to later in this show, has written a column saying that uh, Biden may not know it, but John Roberts just rescued his presidency. How did he do it? Because he didn't go along with the immediate suspension of this Title 42. Title 42 gives the government the right to uh, deny people immediate asylum or deny them the right while uh, they are have asylums pending to just disappear into the United States. And uh, the estimate is that if Title 42 went away, we would be getting an additional 15,000 illegal immigrants per day to go along with the 5 million illegals who have uh, author entered this country without authorization since the Biden administration began. Is there anything that can actually be done about this? And what about the future of that Title 42? We'll be speaking about that. We will be speaking about the impact on the presidential campaigns, the campaign for Biden for winning renomination and reelection, and the various Republican campaigns, including the campaign by President Trump to win another term. That and more. Michael Medved show uh, for this Christmas season uh, a visit not from St. Nick but from St. Volodymyr from uh, Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House this morning now getting ready for a very um, extraordinarily important speech to a joint session of Congress and usually when a foreign leader is speaking to a joint session of Congress it means that at least one of the parties, uh, usually whatever the dominant party is in the House, and that's a complicated question right now because right now the Democrats still run the House of Representatives based on a very, very slim majority, and then the Republicans will take over, uh, presumably Kevin McCarthy, but who knows? He's being challenged uh, vigorously for the, um, the speakership. But uh, he, he might, in fact, be the House leader. He, um, he spoke out against the omnibus bill, which they're trying desperately to get passed before the Republicans come in and uh, before the government shuts down. And that doesn't mean that the Republicans are going to shut down the government, but they are more at least open to that idea as a uh, leverage to get the bill to be changed. The omnibus bill is huge. It has all kinds of strange provisions in it. There's a very powerful editorial in the Wall Street Journal uh, under the heading, The Ugliest Omnibus Bill Ever. Congress will, will pass a 4,155-page bill most members will never read. 
Now, if I told you that I had read every page of the omnibus bill, uh, you would say that I was lying, and I would be. Uh, no, I have not. By, by the way, there is something particularly about the way that these bills are worded and the flurry of numbers, and all of it just it uh, puts your head in a place where fighting sleep, if you're tired, is almost impossible. And... Uh, that's part of the difficulty here is is people are going to be voting yes on the omnibus bill simply because they don't want to see the stupidity of another government shutdown and uh okay but is that enough reason to vote for the omnibus bill uh there there was this from uh the uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, speaking about stopping the omnibus bill and also uh, setting himself up, it seems to me, for an uncomfortable position to be in, which is basically claiming that we have been writing blank checks to Ukraine, this at a time when the profound gratitude of Ukraine uh, for the United States keeping that country basically alive the gratitude is being expressed by President Zelensky. Here is uh, would-be Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the gentleman from California. Listen. Before the election, I explained to everybody, no more blank checks for Ukraine. We want to make sure where the money spent, what's the strategy behind it. But this is exactly what they're doing again. They moved a continuing resolution to right before Christmas. They, they're passing, trying to pass this where nobody can read it. You're correct. You have Leahy and Shelby, two senators who will no longer be senators 14 days from now, write a bill that they wouldn't even show anybody. Then they're going to have the House of Representatives tell them, you can't leave for Christmas until you vote on this. Well, you know what? The American people are smarter than this. The American people understand. They want to stop wasting money causing more inflation. They want to have a say in this process. Don't buy into what the Democrats planned all along. They never moved these bills through the light of day. They never had a hearing in the process. And you know what? When we take the majority, we won't allow the Senate bills to come up unless they move through committee. We won't allow them to do it on the best again. But yeah. we need to stop this one now. Let us craft one in the beginning of next year where we can save and eliminate waste but actually save money for the taxpayer as well. What they're talking about is the current argument is uh, whether or not to get another continuing resolution, which would keep the spending at exactly the same level it is now. And uh, this bill would actually change the spending levels. It would most notably increase defense spending. It would include more aid for Ukraine in the omnibus bill. But uh, it would settle this matter of government spending and uh, until next fall, until this coming fall, which uh, most folks in Washington think that uh, it's actually a, a good and positive I idea. The uh, Wall Street Journal writes in their editorial against the omnibus package, the 17th, 117th Congress has been the most spendthrift in history, undeniably true. And this week it plans to go out with one final bipartisan bat-slapping, back-slapping hoorah, a 4,155-page omnibus spending bill that is the worst in history. This is no way to govern in a democracy, but here we are. A bill this large, 1,500 pages, 
uh, now more than last year's omnibus. In other words, it's 4,155 pages. Last year's omnibus was about 3,000 pages, which would seem to be enough. But no, this one, you have even more. A bill this large can't be all bad, says the journal, and this contains a few bright spots. One is $858 billion for defense, a 9.7% increase. That's $45 billion more than President Biden sought. And it will backfill dwindling weapon stocks, give military members a 4.6% pay raise, and help stabilize the naval fleet, among other urgent needs. There's $45 billion in uh, new military and economic aid for Ukraine in its desperate fight against Vladimir Putin's attempts to conquer more of Europe. And yes, there will be included Patriot missile batteries. The U.S. has announced that there will be $1.85 billion in new aid for Ukraine, uh, plus $850 million under the USIA, U.S. Agency for in inter Internal Development. It includes first-ever transfer to Ukraine of Patriot missile batteries and joint direct attack munitions uh, guidance kits. And... Uh, Today on uh, MSNBC, uh, General Barry McCaffrey, who's been a frequent guest on this show, said that missile defense system uh, that is being sent, the Patriot, is important and symbolic. He claimed Russia is in check, but not checkmate. And to end this war, Ukraine must go on the defensive. Admiral Stavridis, uh, former head of NATO, said that uh, basically, there's no mistake, Ukraine is winning the ground war. But they are losing the air war and these Patriot missile batteries that will be equipped with uh, 90 U.S. personnel each to help in the training of the uh, Ukrainian troops will be operating it. Well, that's important, too. And speaking of important, we have Andy McCarthy coming up from National Review, contributing editor, former prosecutor. What's the latest on Trump's taxes and his legal jeopardy? Coming up on The Medved Show. You're listening to the mighty... You're the best radio show host in the country. Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. City sidewalk. Busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. And on the Michael Medved Show, always a pleasure, particularly at this holiday time of year, to be uh, welcoming back to the show Andy McCarthy, who is a distinguished former United States attorney, assistant United States attorney, and a successful prosecutor. A widely respected author uh, and a contributing editor at National Review and a fellow of the National Review Institute and, of course, a Fox News contributor. So, uh, Andy, there is so much coming all at once at the consciousness of the American people. And at Donald Trump, uh, in terms of his campaign, I mean, it's fair to say that the only news that the campaign has made since he announced his uh, presidential candidacy has been um, a news of new charges against him, the latest, I guess, being not just the decision by the 
January 6th committee, the four criminal referrals. But uh, you have now all this information about his tax reports. Have you looked at that at all? Do you have any uh, immediate reaction to what has been made public? Well, it looks, Michael, I thought it was very interesting to read the New York Times uh, report about the report today, because what they say is that um, the report relies heavily on the New York Times reporting from uh, October 20, uh, was it 2020, 2020, um, and it, um, it basically gave the framework for the report that the House Ways and Means Committee did. So they're basically cribbing off this New York Times story that we saw a couple of years ago, and I think, you know, if you read that, um, you know, I know life is short, but if you skimmed it, uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you would know that, uh, you know, he's got a lot of losses and he's got a lot of minimizing uh, of his tax obligations. I, I, I would say, you know, two things. One, um, I, they say in the, uh, in the piece that he aggressively used his uh, business expenses to minimize or eliminate his tax liability. And I have to say, you know, looking at what the government does with our money, I don't have any problem with anyone uh, that, you know, properly using business expenses to minimize their uh, the amount of taxes they pay to the government. And secondly, I, you know, I would just observe that, um, you know, Trump is a, was a terrible norm breaker. And I'm a believer in norms. I think, you know, we generally have them because they're good things not all of them but most of them uh and I, what i would just point out is that his biggest critics are the biggest norm breakers uh, on a par with him and this is really not a road that we want to go down where uh you know committees for political reasons are pursuing people's tax information uh and then they put it out in the public domain it, it didn't used to be that way it used to be that the uh, the IRS and the committees that had jurisdiction over it were very careful to make sure that if they were giving information to Congress for legislative purposes, they would keep people's personal identifying information out of it. And now that's not what's happening here. This seems to me to be very political. One of the questions that I would have is a lot of the information that's been put forward today uh, most recently has to do with the level of taxes he paid while he was president or while he was running for president at least and Trump has been as you said something of a norm breaker in not making any of that public in other words the idea that um, in 2017 the uh, uh, the Trump's declared negative income of 12.8 million and uh, they paid $750 in taxes uh, <laughs> and it just seems that a president who's elected president of the United States uh, largely on the basis of his business acumen and, and ability and his remarkable success as a businessman etc for a president of the United States to be paying only $750 in taxes, wouldn't you think that a smart accountant or political advisor would say, come on, <laughs> I mean, Mr. President, you got to pay more than that. That's, that's uh, less than a typical middle-class American would pay in taxes. Uh, well, Michael, I, I would say that there's a long list of people who've given Donald Trump good advice like that. 
who didn't have their jobs for very long. So, um, you know, yeah, sure. You know, I, I think what he hoped was that, uh, I think actually what he probably thought was that, you know, since he promised to release his tax information and then he didn't do it and he took the hit for not doing it and he was elected, he figured he could, he could stonewall forever and no one uh, would ever see this stuff. And that if they did see it, they wouldn't care that much about it. And, you know, maybe he'll prove to be right about that. I, I, I do think that the, you know, what we've seen in the last two days, again, is not different than uh, what we knew in 2020. And as far as his business acumen is concerned, you know, if, if for people who bought that story, uh, you know, there's a lot of reporting out there uh, that wasn't necessarily, you know, for people who had it in for Trump, but just people who did straight reporting that he wasn't a terribly good businessman. They could have made a lot more money if he had just like sort of taken the money that he inherited and uh, invested it and, you know, just let it compound. Uh, instead, he ran a lot of companies into bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of dubious uh, business practices that we uh, have known about just because of other investigations. We just had a trial in New York uh, where the organization was convicted. These are minor felonies, but uh, they're still felonies. And it's and 17 of them, right? I mean, so was it 17 counts yep. so where it was guilty? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're sufficiently low level that the, the fine involved is only like $1.6 million, but he's forever, you know, this business he's run for decades is now accurately described as a felon for the rest of his life. Okay, so this brings us to uh, something you've written about very critically, which is the January 6th committee's final act, where you talk about the pointless criminal referrals of Trump. Uh, first of all, why are they pointless? And secondly, do, they, do you think they will have any impact at all as this campaign takes shape? They're pointless because they're not binding. They have no legal effect. And, you know, having worked at the Justice Department for a long time, I can tell people that the Justice Department doesn't care about whether Congress refers uh, conduct to the Justice Department or not, because they feel, and I think they're right about this, uh, that they know a lot more about the criminal law than Congress does. And they are much more careful about evidence than Congress is because they're accountable for it. If people you know, if reckless cases get brought and people get acquitted, the Justice Department's accountable for that, not for not Congress. So they don't pay a lot of attention to, you know, political referrals. Uh, and I think at best, this is pointless. At worst, and this is not uh, inconceivable at all, um, it gives Trump a defense that he wouldn't otherwise have, which is if, if they ever do bring a January 6th charge against Trump, He'll be able to say that there was no charge against him. The Justice Department looked at this for two years, uh, and it wasn't until he declared his candidacy. And then this committee, which is very political, uh, came out and did criminal referrals. Only then did the Biden uh, prosecutor bring charges. Now, you know, I'm not saying there's not a rebuttal to that, but, you know, you're giving him a defense. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't think that's helpful. 
course. Right. I, 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 if, if we can, I, I hope you can hang on for a moment. Sure. Because Trump has said that, uh, quoting Nietzsche, that 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 doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And there is a lot of speculation that he may be strengthened. He may gain momentum and sympathy with all of these various legal attacks on the Trump uh, family and machine. We'll be right back. Can I just say that you do more for radio than what high definition will ever do for television? This is the Michael Medved Show. But Jack Frost is planning uh, to nip it noses all around the uh, Puget Sound uh, region. Uh, they're, they're predicting it gets down to 16 degrees. Now, I know for a New Yorker like Andy McCarthy, that's uh, nothing. But uh, around these parts, it, uh, as it indicates, when people say it's going to be a cold day, uh, well, that's certainly today, the day of uh, Zelensky speaking to the Congress of the United States. He spoke with the president earlier. And I'm speaking to Andy McCarthy, who I'd rather be speaking to than the president of the United States. A mm. Andy, you've been a prosecutor, and you know the internals of how this works. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier to pursue some of the charges against President Trump for uh, Jack Smith and for his team that he's assembling, the special prosecutors supposed to be looking at Trump and at the criminal referrals and all of that, wouldn't it be easier after the presidential campaign? And given the fact that that is uh, now it's less than two years away, would that be unheard of on a case of this complexity that you take more than two years and only come up with your indictments of any after the campaign well it's uh you know yes and no uh it's not unheard of at all to take two years to do an investigation but then again you know when the uh things that you're investigating largely happened in uh 2020 uh and thereabouts you have to start being concerned about the statute of, of uh, limitations, which for most federal crimes is five years. So, uh, you know, he's got to he's got to keep his eye on that ball too. You wouldn't want to just start building an investigation uh, after the campaign is over because people's memories don't get better, cases get stale over time, and then if something comes up, we've seen this in Durham's investigation where he got new information that was uh, critical, for example, to the case against uh, Michael Sussman. He got that text that was almost a, uh, a guilty plea, given what the charges were, but it turned out that he couldn't supersede the indictment and put that in because it occurred after the statute of limitations was over. So he, he was out of time to go back and you know fix the indictment. So I think they have to just go ahead uh, with their investigation, Michael, because in the end, um, the only way that this is a, a worthy case to bring, with every single case that comes up, you ask two questions. One is, do I have enough evidence 
uh, to prove the charges. And secondly, is the prosecution in the public interest? And with Trump, no matter what you think of him, uh, the prospect of bringing a case against not only a former president, but one who is a current uh, uh, contested for office, um, you know, I think it just has to be supported by such strong evidence that it's a compelling case in the eyes of the public and one that the public is convinced has to be brought. And that's why I think he's he's better off and will be better off looking at the Mar-a-Lago documents stuff, which is a much cleaner and more straightforward case uh, than the January 6th uh, issues. Because with January 6th, they've already, the Justice Department has already uh, basically concluded that he was not criminally culpable for the violence. And if that's the case, then, you know, with respect to the obstruction of Congress, which is the, the other uh, count that's very serious, what you would really be doing is criminalizing John Eastman's, um, you know, qu- quacky legal theory. And I really don't think that that's a avenue the Justice Department wants to go down. I think, we, you know, we, we can deride frivolous legal theories without turning them into felonies. Right. Uh, the I, I guess the part of the difficulty is that with the uh, the tax issues as, as well, uh, it's it's very it's extraordinarily complicated. And again, it makes your head spin to just read of of numbers at that level. But what's interesting is that some of the same people with populist inclinations who were very, very enthusiastic about President Trump are also the same people who are very upset about the idea that billionaires don't pay their fair share in taxes. And is that likely to be an effective campaign issue by uh, by Democrats who, of course, um, um, from Bernie Sanders on down, love to go after billionaires and about a uh, tax system that uh, seems to uh, put a heavier burden on ordinary middle-class Americans to some extent than to people of extreme wealth like the former president. I wonder, Michael, if it if it resonates with people who haven't already made up their mind about Trump for other reasons. I mean, from Trump's perspective... He promised to turn over the, this information, and then he didn't do it, and he got elected anyway. And I think he's taken the temperature, at least, of his supporters and decided it's not that important to him. To those who it is important to, um, they're obviously very moved by it, but they've already made up their mind about Trump. I mean, my own view of this is that, you know, for, for what it's worth, Trump can't win a national election. So to me... The dynamic here that's of any importance is when does the the Republican realization happen that if you nominate him, he loses and he probably takes the rest of the party down with him, which doesn't require having a strong feeling about Trump personally one way or the other. It's just, you know, do you want to win or not? Do you want to have four more years uh, of progressive governance and all that portends for the country or not? If you don't want that for the country, then he can't be the nominee. And at a certain point, I think that that truth, which is not going to change, is something that the party has to catch up with. 
I, I think one of the ways I've heard that expressed is that uh, people know quite a bit about Trump, and there are very few Americans who, as as you were indicating before, Andy McCarthy, there are very few Americans who actually say, I don't know about that guy. I'm not sure about that guy. That One way or another, they seem to have their minds made up. So there are not a lot of people who are going to be persuaded either by new details of scandal or by a new wave of sympathy, uh, like the wave of sympathy that appeared to sweep the country when his house was searched at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I, I, you know, I hear that, and I also, um, you know, I connect that to your remark before about, like, the possibility that what, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, that, you know, Trump and Nietzsche in the same... Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, Man and uh, Superman, right. Yeah, but but I... Yeah, Rich Lowry and I have talked about this on our podcast, and the way I see it is um, if it looks like it, um, what they're going after him on is something like Russiagate, where it seems like it could be trumped up, pardon the pun, then that will make him stronger because it'll look like an abuse of power. But if it looks like it's a really you know flat-out crime with strong evidence that the average person would be prosecuted for, like, for example... Uh, you know, obstruction or lying to a grand jury, which appears to be a big part of the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. I don't think that's going to make him stronger. I think that, you know, people are going to look at that as a, you know, they're not, they may not like him being prosecuted, but no one will think it's a, you know, a frivolous or abuse of power prosecution if it's a real crime that's supported by real evidence. Have you heard an explanation in all of the conversations back and forth about uh, why it would be that President Trump would have hesitated so many hours before asking his supporters to disperse on January 6th? I, 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 the best explanation I've heard of that it, it is one that goes to Trump's psyche more than anything else. I, I don't think that he wanted a violent uprising, but I don't think he was altogether in the moment unhappy when one broke out. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it gives me no joy to say that because I think the most serious of the misconduct was the dereliction of duty and not moving faster to to bring that to an end. And I thought he, he could be impeached just for that, you know, absent everything else. Um, but, I, you know, I just don't think in the moment, I don't think he was altogether that upset about the development. Which is very sad to think about. Uh, but uh, happier thoughts coming up for Christmas season. There's actually a column by Gerard Baker who says that uh, 2022 will go down in history as a, a year where realism finally began to triumph. How? Where? We will get to that and to Ruben Navarrete on uh, Title 42 and what that means for the immigration crisis at the border for this greatest nation on God's green earth.